Welcome to another episode of I'm Not Yelling, I'm Dominican podcast hosted by Nachi and Damaris. So prepare yourselves because this introduction is going to be extra as fuck because this guest is that dope. I'm like a proud parent when it comes to her. I love to pick her up. Preparate is all I'm saying. I'm so hyped to introduce my best friend of over 30 years. She's not just a friend. She's also a sister. This woman is a genius, brilliant author, down-to-earth chill human being, loving wife, adoring mother of two sons, hilarious, and equally loud Caribbeanite. <laughs> she is an associate <laughs> professor of history at the esteemed Columbia University. She teaches Caribbean, Atlantic world, and African diaspora history. She received her BA from Yale University and her MA and PhD in history from NYU and is the author of Troubling Freedom, Antigua, and the Aftermath of British Emancipation. Allow me to introduce the incomparable <laughs> Natasha Lightfoot, Dr. Lightfoot, if you're nasty. Okay. Yes, stand up. Antigua, stand up. Uh-uh, not, not the sound effects. Welcome, Natasha. Oh. Uh, thank you for Natasha. having me. I can't even yes. live up to it. Yes, no. You are living it. You, you are, are a living, living legend. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Oh well, we're gosh. really excited to have you wow. here. I mean, obviously, outside of my uh, my introduction, uh, this is <laughs> this is like so dope that we've known each other for this long. Yeah. And that um and what you've dedicated your life to. I've always found it am- admirable that this was something that you had a calling for early in life and you knew that and and it's now your life's work and so for me you know we're both from the caribbean dominican republic over here not you and me and you from antigua and so we share that um commonality of coming from being first gen kids also that caribbean upbringing that is a, a lot of uh, things that are shared across caribbean nations and so i really thought that and I've always thought it was imp- it's important to know one's history. And for us, I'll speak for myself, not cheap, but feel free to interject. A lot of that came from my father and my mom, mm-hmm. what I knew of Dominican Republic and, and um, what they experienced growing up, especially, especially under Trujillo, the dictator at that time mm-hmm. of their upbringing. So I, I'm no expert and no historian. So for mm-hmm. me, it's like great to have you on this episode to kind of um you know talk us through like in general what's happening in that region what what are some of those uh major impacts to that that area and um and kind of just talk through that and of course you know shedding a little bit more light on the history from Dominican Republic and especially uh Haiti since Mm -hmm. it's on a shared island so before we dive into that uh, is is there anything else you want to add to introduce yourself to our listeners and, you know, before we dive in? Well, I feel like I don't want to go too much more into my own bio. If you guys <laughs> want to find out more, Google me. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> okay. There's a lot That's out Natasha there. Natasha Lightfoot. <laughs> okay, if you're nasty. If you're nasty. But no, I'm really happy to be here, happy to share a lot of what I know, what I've learned along the way, and, you know, sort of how... Also, the like you said, the commonalities of our upbringing and sort of the cultural legacies that we have came, you know, come into who we are as, you know, adult New Yorkers, you know, raising children on, 
you know, through this same kind of cultural legacy, et cetera. So very happy to to share what I know. Awesome. And so as a historian, what do you feel, what is the importance of understanding one's history mm-hmm. in this? So a good part of, you know, the discussion right now, even if we think about what's going on in the United States right now, um, about sort of, there were two separate conversations. One that's trying to get to know better how people of African descent were crucial to the making of this country, were crucial to the making of the Americas, not just America, North America, um, but also the entire Western Hemisphere, and the importance of talking about slavery, colonialism, and all the different um, isms that come from that capitalism, racism, et cetera, sexism, all of those things um, that sort of in many ways originate with those, um, you know, kind of first sins of Western expansion, right? And you have like a whole movement trying to get to understand that better. And then there's literally the opposite happening where um, politicians, school boards, et cetera, are pushing to literally block the telling of that truth of those facts about how, you know, all of the countries that we know we have some connection to come to be. Um, So all of this is what I think is the exact um, intersection where the importance of history, of knowing history, of telling the truth becomes very much clear. And ultimately... So much of history, it's true, it's interpretation, yes, that, you know, this is what I've learned to do when I went to graduate school. I was taught about how to look at sources, how to actually extract information that sometimes might not be even obvious on the page. Even still, though, there are certain incontrovertible facts. Slavery happened. <laughs> we right, Black people yeah. came here on boats against mm-hmm. their will. Do you know what I mean? So being able to say that, emphatically and to talk about everything that happened both intentional and unintentional from that because there were so many consequences for the economy for our society for cultural aspects like language and religion and food ways and you know that we could just go on and on there's so much about who we are that you just don't really get to know if you don't have a firm understanding of what history is so all of that i think is wrapped up in why it's important to to really know history. No, I think that's great. Uh, that that explains so much. And um, I, I just, you know, it's also understanding one's own history. It's like, it's also part of your identity. It's understanding yourself, too. Mm-hmm. Understanding why you may do things that you do because it's part of your culture, but why is it part of your culture? And that, and that yeah. speaks to the history of like what gets passed down, et cetera. From your perspective, obviously, what, and I have my own, thinking of my own answer on this, but mm-hmm. what historical events you feel massively shaped that region of oh. the Caribbean? Right? Uh, well, I mean, I can go through, it's funny enough, I, I could have like, a million different answers for this, but I'll just hit on the major points in the courses that I teach. Right. Um, you know, that I really would not be able to, you know, say that I felt like I had sufficiently introduced students to what the Caribbean is without touching on. And so obviously it would start with, 
you know, the arrival of Europeans and the decimation of natives, um, the few who are left being subject to forms of enslavement and the dispossession of their land and wanton removal to different places. Um, then, of course, uh, the arrival of Europeans also brings, like I mentioned, the arrival against their will of Africans um, into the region and the making of what has been termed by scholars as a Creole culture, this mixture um, of different people and different, you know, traditions sort of coming together and creating all of these um, hybrid ways of being. Uh, then I would I talk about the making of the plantation society and all the different aspects socially, economically, and politically of what it means to be a part of a society where enslaved people are the majority but don't have a majority voice. Um, and, you know, sort of white Western Christian, you know, ways of being are imposed. Um, and so what do what do people of, you know, African, sometimes mixed indigenous descent, sometimes mixed with with European descent, what do that that set of people that results? What how do they both receive all of that imposition? How do they also resist it? So I talk about slave uprisings and slave plots. Um, I think it's just important to be able to say there's only one successful slave uprising in the whole history of the Caribbean, and that is the emergence of the nation of Haiti. Right. And mm -hmm. Haiti paid in many ways for all of us to be free. Um, we would teach the history of slavery very differently if Haitians hadn't risen up and burnt everything down and, and threw all the white people out, basically. Um, and so that is why... Shots fired again. I mean, okay. you know, we just have to be clear, right? <laughs> so there's just no Sometimes class. Sometimes you got to burn it down. Literally, come on. So, um, you know, I don't teach a class without talking about the Haitian Revolution, but I also talk about all the people who tried and failed because even the attempt shows that ethos of freedom. I talk about what happens when Europe sort of decides, okay, we don't want to do slavery anymore. Let's try to do a different set of, you know, labor formation where we just pay all, you know, like terrible wages. Slave, yeah, exactly. slave wages. Slavery outside, it, you know, everything but in name, you know. And um, I also talk about the moments where you then have a whole bunch of fighting back happening in the 20th century, different responses, again, of trying to create other ways of doing life in the Caribbean. So talking about like a bunch of labor uprisings that happened in the English, um, you know, held Caribbean over the 30s, the 1959 Cuban Revolution, talking about the 1979 Grenada Revolution. So different moments where different islands, different sets of people just decide enough is enough and how all of those don't actually work out either. <laughs> um, but again, I still believe there's something, I tell my students all the time, there's something really instructive, something really, you know, sort of nuggets of, of, of important information to be found in failure, right? Um, so, and then I talk at the end about all of the more recent developments that in many ways reinforce the longer colonial cycle that, you know, I begin, I begin with when I talk about Columbus um, at the start of these classes, so stuff around tourism as a service economy, you know, that's singular, that a lot of these islands depend on, that puts people in positions of subservience, similar to the way that slavery did with all these singular economies built around certain crops, 
you know, puts you in subservience again. As long as you look a certain color, you're going to be assumed to be a slave. Now in the tourist economy, if you look a certain color, you're assumed to be folding towels or picking up golf balls mm. or serving drinks. You know, I talk about climate change, <laughs> which, right. you know, which impacts the Caribbean the hardest. Hugely. And the Caribbean has such a low footprint in terms of, you know, creating the conditions for all of these climate catastrophes and they're constantly impacted by it. You know, we're having once in a generation storms like every two to three years now. We had storms that classified as basically category six out of five categories. Right. (laughs) I mean, the fact that a hurricane shut down New York City in 2012 is just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Like, this city has never been, at least while we were growing up, had never shut down. When when I say shut down, lights are out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Times Square is not on. Literally, lines for gas. That's what I remember. Trains not working. (laughs) Yes. Trains. Yes. Transportation is 24 hours. Exactly. That's, yeah. So climate change is real. And being able to look at, you know, again, Caribbean history, they've always been dealing with climate change. Hurricanes have always blown through there. And, you know, a lot of people who theorize about it, too, talk about the fact that it's maybe not coincidental that hurricanes form off the coast of Africa, Mm. you know? And that there might be something. Oh, the ancestors are brewing. Exactly. You know, <laughs> pick up what I'm putting down. Exactly. <laughs> They're like, oh, let me let me find out. Let right. Me send some smoke your way. <laughs> right. Ooh, you had all wow. these smoke hundreds of years ago, and still have smoke now. And here we are. You know. So it's it's it's. I don't know that that's a coincidence either. Yeah. I like that observation. No, I don't think that is a co- coincidence. You know, it's the fighting spirit. There's something about the human spirit. I feel like people don't like when you talk about there were still attempts, even if they were not successful, yeah, exactly. because there's just a part of the human spirit that is meant to be free. Right. Like, I just don't believe exactly. we're not born to be enslaved in any capacity. Yeah. You know, like even consumerism, like you just think you're not meant to be beholden to an ideology or anything i just feel like you're meant to follow your instinct your intuition Mm -hmm. and that's why it's given to us it's funny because i have students sometimes you know meaning well um will ask well you know were there good slave owners (laughs) okay they were slave owners i don't know if they were good you know it's like the participation in that system means that you know by default, there's no goodness anywhere entering into the conversation. But, you know, some students definitely want to hear about that, obviously, for certain reasons. Yeah, familial. They're like, oh, <laughs> so my great, great granddaddy on the plantation. I will neither confirm nor deny. I'm just going to say that it's a Scott, Guys, just look at her resume. Hey there, INY tribe. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We want to take a quick moment to ask for your support. Creating and producing this podcast takes a lot of time, effort, and resources. We love bringing you valuable content, but can only do it with your help. If you find value in what we do and would like to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Spread the word. Share this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues. Word of mouth is a powerful way to help us reach a wider audience. Leave a five-star rating and a review on platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which can really help boost our visibility and attract new listeners. 
or donate by clicking the link in our show notes to buy us a coffee. Your contributions will go directly towards improving the quality of our episodes and bringing you even more amazing content. We appreciate every single one of you who listens to, engages with, and supports our podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community and helping us grow. Now let's get back to the episode and continue the conversation. Stay tuned for more exciting content coming your way. <laughs> You'll understand. <laughs> all, all I can say is that I've had to explain to them, it's, it's a particular kind of conceit to believe you can own someone outright, a person, a human being. So right as property, like, right? You you may you could put them up as collateral for loans, and get will them as gifts to your survivors. Yes, I think I read somewhere mm-hmm. that they were mortgaging. Oh, absolutely, they were mortgaging enslaved slaves. people, and I I was. Oh, mm-hmm. That's a, a lot of the credit system that you know mm-hmm. governs. You know, basically the Western Hemisphere comes out of slavery. Yeah, I mean, well. <laughs> The, the stock market, when you understand why Wall Street is called Wall Street, mm-hmm. and that's because they had a wall and they were selling slaves on that mm-hmm. wall. Um, yeah, that and Wall Street is the the center of the financial universe. Yeah. I mean, that in itself mm-hmm. should tell you symbolically um, right. the capitalism and it's... Uh, and it's where, where it came from. Yeah, it's directly tied up yeah. with slavery. Yeah, I mean, and it was the trading of cotton and yeah. those goods that were... <laughs> and people. Yeah. You know, and like, people, it I mean, just, like, it's just... It's so all let's not pretend. Yeah. I mean, we can't. And multiple spinoff industries. Shipping doesn't happen without it. Insurance doesn't happen without it. You know, so... Like you said, credit, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a whole, mm-hmm. you know, series of things. I'm not really an economic historian, but there's no way to sort of avoid the you know overwhelming evidence for how the the modern economy that we have today sort of rests on um you know a function of like the way that that slavery structured a lot of western societies you know yeah i i think um you talked to you started to talk about haiti and without haiti's liberation mm-hmm. we wouldn't be where we are today as yeah. black people Absolutely. in the diaspora so Praise God. Big up to Haiti. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Thank you. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, and it's funny, whenever, I mean, for me, yes, born here, but I always felt like, well, we share the land, you know, just for me, I've always been like, oh, yeah, well, I'm sure we're cousins and yes. sisters and brothers. Like this, that's kind of impossible to not think that. But there is a lot of, um, uh, as there's a lot of history that, kind of disconnects and has like this um resent from those two nations mm-hmm. and uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because it's it saddens me when I see anti-blackness especially mm-hmm. t- towards Haitians and um but this is again not to say that this is how all of Dominican Republic is but yeah. there is some history that goes with that and um, I know there was about 20 years of occupation. And I wouldn't, actually, I wouldn't even call it occupation, but when Haiti uh, attempted to unite the land. Mm-hmm. That was sides. like, but not too long after right. Haiti emerged as a nation. Right. Um, that like roughly around 1820, uh, in the 1820s, yes, um, yes. underneath the sort of the governance of one of the generals from the revolution, Jean-Pierre Poirier. There's a a move to mm-hmm. um, unite the island on both sides, 
and that lasts until 1844. Right. And over that time period, um, you know, the Haitians are who end slavery in the DR. So, you know, it's something that, you know, th- obviously Haiti being committed to a project of black liberation there, you know, that was one of their kind of early achievements. But it's also um, said that there was a lot of infighting between the two nations. I know that when the Dominican Republic declares its independence, they declare it from the Haitians. Um, yes, and then there's a true. war that, so they declare their independence in 1844, but then there's a war for restoration um, in the 1860s um, where there's a, a, a faction of people who actually want to bring back Spanish colonialism into the, into the Dominican Republic. Um, but I will say that what's interesting is the histories of both sides of the island are kind of fraught with the histories of, like, there's dictatorship, there's economic depression, there's a lot of intrusion from, you know, Europe and the United States trying to control how their governance works. And then at at a certain point in, you know, the, the sort of, like, early, like, 1900s, actually, between 1915 and 16, the United States will occupy both sides of the island. And then, you know, there's going to be a period of American interference that's going to heighten what was already a a kind of dramatic set of tensions between the two sides. And I think what you end up seeing is a push to sort of strengthen the border Mm -hmm. between Haiti and the DR. Um, this will culminate in uh, what's known as the Parsley Massacre in 1937, um, where there's, you know, an unknown number of Haitians who are massacred at the border between the the DR and Haiti. And it's under the direction of uh, General Trujillo. Yep. And, you know, there was such a move to try and sort of suppress it. There was a lot of work to try and claim that it was just skirmishes between, you know, farmers and cattle ranchers. There was, you know, there's been a lot of work to try and recover the memory of it. Certain scholars and writers, um, thinking here of novelists like Edwige Danticat, um, or, you know, historians like, you know, Richard Turritz, Lauren Derby, Eddie Paulino, people like that who have written really interesting books about the stories of what has come to be. I also think of, I want to name, you know, two uh, Afro-Dominican women scholars who are amazing, Dixa Ramirez and Lorgia Garcia-Pena, who have really tried to, like, kind of reorient us to understanding that some of the anti-Haitianism that was happening was essentially also, in effect, trying to silence browner-skinned Dominicans, too. Like, Black Dominicans also found themselves being victimized. There was no way really fully to yeah, distinguish because who we're was all who. right. Like Ex- many of us had the same complexion exactly. across the border. So it's- when you're on an island for 500 <laughs> years together, you're cousins. Yeah, right. that's what I'm exactly. saying. I said, I'm like, oh yeah. So, so yeah, um, all these people who, uh, and I'll certainly provide you with a book list to throw up on, yeah, we'll you know, description. absolutely. But I, you know, I feel like, there's a lot of of work being done to sort of say not every Dominican person was for this kind of expelling of Haitians, 
but that there was a real sort of impulse to create a national identity around saying what we are in the DR is not Haitian. And that it became very violent, it became very angry, it became very, you know, extremely racist, you know, and it's it's such an interesting thing when you look at how people who can barely be distinguished by the naked eye from Haitians are saying, I can tell so-and-so is a Haitian because of how they pronounce something or how they look or how they interact. And it's it's all very, you know, sort of like, it's, it's, it's all intentional and created. It is not innate. And unfortunately, those types of tensions still exist today. Yes. And it affects policy. In the DR, there's been moves to denationalize people who have Haitian ancestry. Yeah, I even think if they've like been 2012, like the Supreme 2013. Courts, yeah. Oh, 2013, yeah. right. And it was like, it, you know, and the, there's been moves ever since to still sort of, even though internationally that got such bad attention, right? It's still something that's being, you know, kind of clandestinely done. Um, and again, there are all these, there are activists who are working on the island. You know, folks who here who are working on behalf, uh, you know, both Dominican and Haitians who are working on behalf of, you know, people of Haitian descent living in the DR. And, you know, there's still this like kind of governmental resistance. The sort of powers that be, I think, still benefit from, uh, you yeah. know, advancing this language of anti-Haitianism. Absolutely. I think there's um, there's a lot to benefit from from an imperialistic country standpoint to have this kind of division on that island there's more control you can have on these mm -hmm. two nations that are much smaller if you have them divided than if they were united in mm -hmm. you know economic policy and the like exactly. right because then that means you have more control over rice sugarcane and stuff like right. that given that but, the majority of people on both sides yes. are you know poor working class people who are visibly of african descent that would, would be a problem way for... Way more power yeah, in unity. And that's a problem for <laughs> imperial countries. Exactly. And unfortunately... <laughs> Such as the U.S. And, and Europe. And that's the thing, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's hard to sort of tell the story of these places in the Caribbean as independent when there are all these forms of, mm -hmm. you know, neocolonialism that still exists even after formal colonialism is done. You know, um, a lot of it through economic means, um, through, you know supranational organizations like the UN, but also, you know, the World Bank and the IMF and, you know what I mean? So there's like, when you yeah, start the, asking... Yeah, the very idea that mm -hmm. Africa as a continent filled with so many African nations, obviously, don't even have their own central bank and all the central banks outside of that continent, they're, they ensure that that does not happen because that would be a problem for the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. you already understand why it would be a problem because the majority of the world's natural resources come from that continent. Exactly, yeah. If they actually control the money, right? <laughs> listen. Yeah, listen. exactly. You got so, a problem, Houston. Right. That's <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I, this, these are the kinds of things I'm constantly telling my students about, you know, sort of wh where colonialism's legacies linger. And the fact that, you know, I, I, I literally was just on a radio program in Antigua like two days ago saying you don't, after a while, need the presence of a majority of white people to still have white supremacy mm -hmm. because 
colonialism is a training ground for it that allows it to, you know, persist in the ways of, you know, elites who come to power that are, you know, of local extraction. They are, they might be, you know, skin folk. They are not kin folk at this Ooh. point, you know? <laughs> so say it again. These things are, um, you know, they're, they have to be undone. There's so much work to do to really achieve what is true Caribbean independence, but also interdependence, where the the region really finds ways to unite with each other and not be so dependent on the U.S. and Europe, and now increasingly China, to float them economically and therefore have a say in their political affairs right. as a result. No, absolutely. And I think when you, you mentioned the fact that while the presence of colonialism isn't there physically any longer, but it's still there, the mm -hmm. influence of, of it still persists. And yeah. I think it persists, one of the ways I see that persistent is through colorism and classism, yeah. which I feel like to me always kind of goes hand in hand. And I don't know if you remember this, Nachi, when Bobby used to tell us how, He's like, look, you could be the darkest Dominican out there, but the minute you're rich, he's like, oh, you put on your paper that you're not white. <laughs> like, that's you now. That's <laughs> you're now your white. Now you're white, white money right. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> and that is, that's speaking to the classism part of colorism, right? A, yeah. you know, you're dark, you're poor, you're not, um, you just are not going to have the potential of someone who's lighter, who's white skin. Mm -hmm. um, but even when they have money, they they hate themselves enough that they want to bleach their own skin, mm. which is sad. Oh, it's ridiculous. Like you look at, um, what's that baseball player? <laughs> Sam 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 Sosa. Sosa. Embarrassing. Oh my Embarrassing. goodness. He looks like Eddie Munster. Mm. He looks worse now. <laughs> A Dominican legend. Why do you think... <laughs> not, not even. That, you're the light, that you being lighter... <laughs> Right. It's going to make you more attractive. And that, you know, that just goes to how deep rooted mm -hmm. the hatred towards black skin is in the Dominican Republic. And and I would say in a lot of Caribbean countries um, yeah. and how that colorism plays. So, I, I, yeah, I would be interested to hear what we have to say about that. So it's funny, too. Like, one of the things I've found is that obviously there has been a sort of different system of understanding how, you know, race and skin color works in the Caribbean versus say the United States where basically, you know, there was a one drop rule and as minute you had one drop of black that could be traced, you were You're black. black. That's it. <laughs> and the story you are and you will be black. right. So the boundary was put up really like, you know, sort of intentionally around what is whiteness. Um, different gradations exist and have meaning, you know, and I would say it's not that they don't have meaning in the United States. They do, right? Because colorism is a thing too. And there's a, a certain kind of romance around lighter skin here <laughs> as well. I don't want to absolve the United States um, you know, black community of <laughs> of that mm -hmm. either, Cannot. right? Because yeah. that exists. <laughs> but I do yes. think the Caribbean was very clearly intent on creating categories of brownness, mm -hmm. different shades of in the middle that carried weight. And what gradation of brown you were had meaning and sometimes would actually be a part of, you know, like 
one's identity, how one, you know, fell in society, where you could, you know, where you could find opportunity, etc. However, the even with the so-called difference, the point is is that in every system, again, up and down the Americas, the blacker you were, the worse it got. The that's one a, thing you don't want to be, the commonality. All across. Don't, be the <laughs> don't be the darkest. Good luck. Good luck if you are. You know what I mean? Because the 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 oh, the whole entire approach to society is, you know, and again, I don't divorce this from slavery. This is all rooted in slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's this idea that you know the 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 value that you had in society was worn in your skin, and if you were visibly black. You were property. That was your value. You see what I mean? So we're still just trying to to move beyond, you know, every every skin color having a price right now. And I do think that in the Caribbean, we have a long way to go. Like Caribbean diaspora too, right? Like wherever Caribbean people go, they take these ideas about colorism with them. They take these ideas about, you know, colorism and then get hit with... <laughs> When they come to the states, right? Like, oh, right. there's no gradation. There's no, no. The, the cops don't really distinguish. They're like Dominican, African American. No. Who gives a fuck? You right. Are black. right. Stop You're resisting. Honestly. We clump you. Stop, yes. Stop resisting. <laughs> Period. Period. So, you know, oh my God. The, I mean, yeah, we just have to be clear that yeah. you know the the there's a certain kind of racial education that really can, you know, reorient you the minute you head to somewhere that is a white-dominated nation, whether, you know, because people in the Caribbean can end up in lots of different places, the U.S., Canada, the U.K., France, you know, Holland, whatever. You know what I mean? They can go, they go all over, right? We, we'll go anywhere for work. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll especially find ourselves in the nations of our former colonizers, Right. Um, trying to find a way, a footing. And in some ways, the United States colonized us all. So a lot of us are in the United States and figuring this out pretty much immediately upon arrival that, <laughs> you know, the rules are not the same here. And I think in the many like ways... like Smith-Martinez. Who right, cares? Who cares? <laughs> and, I, and I also would say that what happens here then has an effect back on the islands we have left behind mm-hmm. too. Like I do think that as, you know, significant populations of Caribbean diasporic people are collected in different parts of the United States and have these interactions with, you know, with the state, with the welfare system and the, you know, the 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 criminal justice system and whatever. Like you get to a place where you get a different understanding of how race is basically underlining every single facet of, you know, of everyday life. And then you realize it it was also like that too at, at home, even though, mm-hmm. you know, it was a majority black or African descended nation. It There was still certain similarities and now the conversation can be, uh, you know, kind of opened up a bit more. You know, so I think there's something important about the sort of the migration and the lessons learned from it for pretty much the whole of the Caribbean, for sure. Yeah, I I think, too, 
when you're also also here when you become a citizen or you have you live most of your life here and you go back to your country mm, your native yeah, land yeah. there is that there creeps in some of that classism too that may come up right mm-hmm. especially of like okay well now i'm making dollars right right no longer mm-hmm. pesos and you know i sometimes maybe i feel like i i think i am better because i have access to more resources yeah. but <laughs> but when you're here in the states it's like oh no you working class yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Calm down, right? Right. So right. It's it's interesting to see how um, some people navigate that. I I'd say for our experience growing up, it was great. I mean, my father was happy. He's like, look, if we're gonna go to DR, he's like, I love my family. I don't need to stay at your house because people were always inviting us to stay here. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I'm making money. I'm gonna stay at a resort. He's yeah, like, I'm, I'm right. gonna enjoy life. Y'all boozy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Y'all and a boozy ass family. And I will say that is not because he felt he was better. My, right. If you know my father and obviously Natasha mm-hmm. grew up with him, he never felt he was better. But he's like, I made money so I can enjoy life, not right. to be in a home where in this country the light goes out because if. Because it's a Monday night. Right. You know? And so he's like, I want a backup generator. And uh, they're going to have that at the resort. They're going to have that at the resort. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we moved. And mm-hmm. oh, and so Nachi and I, we had a very nice rude awakening when they sent us to DR one summer without them. Uh, and we stayed at a house because yeah. <laughs> our parents weren't there. We were like, oh, we're playing cards by the moonlight? Yeah, Oh, this we is are. a thing? Oh, we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> we are like, summer, DR summer camp. We are like, okay, this will be the first and last. Wow. Well, <laughs> but I, I loved spent it. every summer in Antigua I know having you that very down-home experience. Look, I loved Kerosene it. Kerosene lamps. <laughs> I'm just saying that when I was with mommy and poppy, we just you yes. enjoyed. We were in all inclusive. Enjoyed the island much better. <laughs> I just, I just yeah, felt like no. you know, I enjoyed mm-hmm. towels being brought to me in poolside. Girl, but, see, um, <laughs> you were a tourist. Well, I was not. That decidedly was not. That, that definitely shaped my understanding of the Caribbean deeply. Being, you know, having that down home experience for weeks on end. The minute school closed, it was like, here goes your bag. Your bag's are packed. Ain't nobody paying for summer camp. Enjoy the summer. Enjoy. See, see you the week before Labor Day. So. And it was it was rough living because it was like, you know, my grandparents' house, my cousins still lived there. You know, one of my aunts still lived at home, and plus my grandparents, then us. It was just, it was tight. It was hot. It was a lot of familyness. A lot of family togetherness. Togetherness. No, but I, I, and I, (laughs) but I have fond memories of that one summer. And, and the other times that we went when we were at a hotel. I, I'm can't. just saying. I'm just I saying. Feel like I like the pool and the beach. Any day, anytime. But, you know, I'll say this. I um because of my parents and uh my mom grew up in a working class family. My father was an orphan, so I he had a great appreciation of living life to the fullest and also sharing and being generous. Mm. And because of him and my mom, they would actually do a lot of charitable, like, givings and Christmas gift charity events because my father knew what it was like to have without. And me observing that firsthand, I was, it made me even more grateful for what I did have here in the States because I Mm -hmm. knew 
that. I was like, oh no, this is this is tough stuff. And like, while I, that summer that I spent in DR, I enjoyed playing, you know, baseball with the kids. But I noticed that they didn't have shoes, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But they were still very happy, and mm-hmm. it was just like, okay, cool. So I'm like, no, I got a good life. Like, I'm not Listen, even going to be a spoiled we brat about that. People. This was a regular thing. Like my, you know, in my family, my mom was always sending stuff back. There was no mm-hmm. understanding of herself as just here in the United States to support the f- the family that she had created in the United States. My dad as well. Like they, they were always sending money back and things back. And there was no way that you could leave here. When we, were, when we got our bags packed to go for our summer with our grandparents, there were things in the bag that were decidedly not ours. The bags were full to the brim of things that were not ours because we were muling, we were bringing a whole bunch right. of necessities for all the original the mules. Okay, listen. Sans drugs. Come, Sans narcotics. Right? Like, you no, have a seriously. a separate suitcase for everything A else. separate yeah. suitcase for, for everything your people needed. And and in some ways mm-hmm. that still exists, you know? Yeah. Um, now it's it's high tech. It's like family members have ordered things on Amazon or whatever, and they'll send it to your house, and you're gonna have to pack that with your stuff. Look at technology. Exactly. Look at Am- God. Amazon and needs to be paying you right. for the delivery in Antigua. How about that? <laughs> but you know, it's it's always there's always been that that sense, and I think that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter where you're from, um, that if you if you have people at home mm-hmm. that are depending on you. You know, you have to come through. Yeah. There's no choice in the matter. Yeah. You know, your salary is going to be whatever you make is going to be divided, not just amongst the people here. It's going to have to some of it has to go to the people who, you know, in some ways you never really left behind. You know, yeah, no, you got to put your hand back. You got to give them the helping hand too. like, yeah. you know, like share that wealth and share it in the way that is meaningful to them, too. And that's going to help them and mm-hmm. also help you. I mean, I. I don't see why you wouldn't like it. Yeah. Whenever yeah. I watch that 90 Day Fiance stuff, and people, the oh Americans get upset that oh, the, their, their foreign fiance is sending money back. I'm like, <laughs> y'all are crazy. Like, why? What did you it, think this was? Why wouldn't right. you send money back to your family? But okay, whatever. Right. Why am I on TV for? Is, like, what do you think this is? This is this is the the clash that Natasha and I have, and obviously you two, Natasha, with the different cultures, right? Your American upbringing, yes. and then also your Caribbean upbringing. You're like, you're supposed to send back, like yeah, that's a given. Like this is a you even... you make money here and you stay here and live your best life. You mm-hmm. know, right. you you help your family out. Absolutely. But that being said, I, I think we've had a great conversation so far. But I I really want to for our listeners. Um, I'd love to hear your recommendations on kind of like the resources you recommend for people um, to educate themselves on their history. Obviously, you know, like books, online resources, um, organizations that you think are good places to to start to Mm. look into that. Oh, wow. I feel like I can't quite think of, you know, anyone particular. Like, you know, at the top of my head. And well, in New York, there's. Um, the Caribbean Cultural Center's African Diaspora mm-hmm. Institute, mm-hmm. Um, you know, which I believe is now on 125th Street. At one point it used to be in Midtown, but I believe it's in Harlem now. Um, you know, there's a lot of Caribbean archives at the Schomburg Center on 135th. Um, you know, some that I've worked with. Um, I feel like the there's also, though, like, 
a lot of books. I feel like there's a lot of books that you could read if you're interested in just knowing more about the Caribbean. There's and I guess the problem and you is know what? I don't you know. could give me the you can if there's a list you have in mind you can give that to me and I'll also put this in the yeah, description yeah that's what I was thinking because and, there's so many good books and I, I some of them obviously I'm an academic so right, right, I get right. you know I read sort of those like, really smarty pants books yeah, yeah no. a little dense <laughs> but I will say too that there are novelists who write such beautiful like historical representations of actually teaching a course now on how literature in from the Caribbean is so very tied up with talking about history and addressing historical mm-hmm. events. It's like again, we're always trying to negotiate and think about the history that the legacies of slavery and colonialism and everything else that comes from that that you know so many writers are just constantly, you know, writing through that in their current day stories. They're always looking back at history. So so many novels that I could recommend. I also meant to say, too, we talked a lot about Caribbean independence, and I still want to not erase the fact that there are so many Caribbean nations, so many Caribbean territories that are not nations. They are still colonies. Yes. And that's another part mm-hmm. of the problem. We should like, have a part two. Well. Yeah, no, no, I'm serious. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, no, like, in general, I just want to sort of, you know, be clear that not everywhere in the Caribbean has even... <laughs> it depends on how you define freedom. Maybe, you know, nowhere is fully free, you know, but I will say that there are places that are still, you know, possessed technically by law under the, you know, sort of like the ownership of another nation. So, you know, Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. um, the British Virgin Islands, you know, Martinique Guam. and Guadalupe. You know, well, well, yeah, right. So I mean, it's not the part of the Caribbean, but the idea of right, like, like the being, fact that the United States yeah, has had an empire, right, and that so much of what you know what has made you know America quote unquote great has been these these sins. Oh, shots fired! <laughs> I'm just saying we have to be very clear about you know sort of the truth and the revisionist history, right? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, girl, I I heard that loud and clear. (laughs) And the reason why I asked you about resources is because, you know, I just feel like, even though it seems like an obvious question, you could just probably Google it, but I I just feel like there's a lot of skepticism in general. I know I'm a skeptic. And so Mm -hmm. I don't just trust any source just because it exists. You know what I mean? And so that's why. there's so much out there that is questionable. You're right. Right. So that's why, but, you know, offline, we'll get a list from you, and I'll put Absolutely. that in the description. Um, and then lastly, uh, you you talked about this a little bit early in the conversation about there just seems to be a constant threat of the erasure of black history, right? There's like yes. this uh, people's history in the diaspora, and you as a historian, what do you recommend? Like, how do we protect our history? How do we protect that? Um, so a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we got to get in school. I think this is true mm-hmm. of, you know, everywhere that I think the Caribbean could be doing more to educate itself on its past. So much of Caribbean education systems interest is in giving a sort of, you know, sanitized history of colonialism mm-hmm. and slavery. I get very worried about what's not being um 
you know, what's not being shared, what's not being told straight in a, in a sort of like straightforward and, you know, kind of robust way. And so I think the same is true as well with, I mean, the fight here around history is at the K through 12 level. Again, we're dealing with the issue, but I, but I also say it's very possible that you could leave the education system in the United States and you will have a warped understanding of your history of the history of this country. Right. You will. Yeah. Not I mean, Natasha, know I don't anything. know if you remember in grammar school, I felt like there was literally one paragraph for his, for slavery. And it was a pink box or something. It yeah. Was, yeah. It yeah. wasn't even like it was a side note. It was a side note. It was definitely not in it the, was like, yeah, it was it in happened, the margins, but, special know, interests, you know, not, not that important. <laughs> right. Like, oh, by the way, this also, right. This also influenced the civil war <laughs> that this, this little two sentence blurb. <laughs> right. But mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think interesting enough, you will pass through the United States education system and learn some history of the United States. It's very possible, for instance, to pass through, you know, the education systems of many um, Caribbean countries and not learn the full history of your of the country you're in. So there's something going on there okay. with regard to the su- suppression of history in different ways that I think we have to, you know, talk about or just even certain aspects of it. Like, you know, I don't know how many Dominican school children know about 1937. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What, are they being mm-hmm. taught about that? Is that being, you know, sort of erased from school books, et cetera, right? So these are the kinds of things that you have to have, you know, more conversations about, but also I think it's the onus is on everyone to do more, to read more, to find out more. But I also think the the question of, preserving in some ways is about what you wh- what lessons you learn from the earliest what do you what do you get when you're in the the mode of compulsory learning right <laughs> when you're in school mm-hmm. what are you learning what is actually being you know told to you as this is the thing you need you can't leave school without knowing about the past and it shouldn't it just shouldn't be like kings and queens and, you know, Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan and, and nah. nah. Like, you know what I mean? And U.S. presidents. And that's not How? it. How? That's How? not Let's it. Let's dig in. Let's <laughs> dig in. Let's also realize that people, ordinary people made history, that, you know, history is, that history is just so full of people who tried, <laughs> you know, who wanted to be mm-hmm. free, um, mm-hmm. that, you can't tell this his, the history of again of this whole part of the world without talking about black people. We're at the center of it. Sorry, <laughs> that's just what it not is. Sorry, not you know, sorry. right? Not sorry. <laughs> Period. So, <laughs> you know, so yeah, the, all of that I feel like um, is part of the work. You know, um, of kind of reorienting what we all know and what our children learn. Um, you know, cause everyone's not going to do a PhD in history. Sure. But, you know, there, it might be, it might be a podcast like this that makes somebody want to find out a little bit more, do a little more research. I also think some of the frontiers being one with genealogical research too. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who are doing research into their own family history and realizing how that history interacts with the bigger <clears throat> systems that I've already been talking about this whole time, you know, because, 
there are reasons why certain people appear in a bloodline or disappear from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, why certain people end up leaving a certain part of the world and ending up in another. You know? And that's not... That is not, you know, divorced from this bigger story of how certain nations come to be, you know, subjugated, like the Caribbean. Yeah, (laughs) and I think that's why my first question was around what resources can people, you know, um, access to learn more about the history, only because while, yes, it should be taught in the schools, we know it's not taught in a consistent Mm -hmm. way or in any kind of deep way. So until that happens then it's like you need to be educating yourself so that you can educate your kids so I can educate yeah. my niece and nephew because otherwise relying simply on a third party is just ain't happen. It's not enough in my opinion. But it's a start, right? Yeah. So it's like we gotta start somewhere as a people to. and we have to keep it alive and if if it means by word of mouth then so be it because that's how history was kept alive um amongst our ancestors for right. our, Absolutely. You know, generations. So this has been a great talk so far. <laughs> I love it. I feel like there needs to be a part two. I know, I know. No, I mean, obviously, because you're like my best friend ever. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, my. 10 years since we were 10. So Not for her. I know. That's, that's, what were you going to say, Nachi? No, no, I said a very long time. doesn't feel that long. <laughs> no. I mean, because we're like 25 right now, right? That's, that's true. The beauty, yes. That is that's so true. true. Like 50 years. I don't know how we had 20, right. 30 years of friendship at 25. Too, but whatever. That math, that math is that rough is, math. Math is math. Ladies are delusional. Mm. Math is math. And someone's hating on Damn. the other end. Someone's hating Damn. on the other end. <laughs> but whatever. Well, now this... <laughs> This was a great conversation. I mean, I truly enjoyed it. Uh, so thank you, Natasha, for hanging out and thank just you schooling us me. on our history. And I hope you all, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I hope the you all are encouraged to learn <laughs> more about your unique Caribbean history to get be- to get a better understanding of your roots and gain insights into the struggles and triumphs of our ancestors, as well as present day issues facing the Caribbean community. And I also hope that it inspires us all to work towards a better future. So let's keep that torch lit and don't stop learning. Thank you for listening and please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and sign up for our emails on our website at imnotyelling.co to get the latest updates. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.